Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Media Network. We've been seated for more than 15 minutes before our waitress came to the table. Her tired eyes and slumped shoulders told us the story we needed for that night. What drinks can I get for y'all? She asked. As if she was a foreign spy and we held the nuclear codes, we waited until she walked away before restarting our conversation. Did I ever tell you that you ruined my first concert? Matt told me. As a music fan, these aren't the words you wanted to hear. But Matt is one of my oldest friends. We met in middle school and have sustained a friendship for nearly two decades now. Despite long distances, he stood by me during my wedding, once offered me a job, and he's still one of my closest friends to this day. So this was the kind of brutal honesty that could be expected. Caught off guard, my mind started running through the memories. Then it clicked. My head dropped and I began to laugh. My immediate fear was something embarrassing, but the reality was much less threatening. In fact... The sole injustice cause was the fact that I invited him to the concert to begin with. It was poor matchmaking, like setting up a California 10 with an Idaho 7. I haven't been to a concert since then. You literally ruined concerts for me, he said with a laugh. His wife elbowed him in the ribs and told him to stop being so dramatic. Quit being so dramatic. No, 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 I get it. I can see how that wouldn't have been the best first concert for someone, I responded. There has to be some grace here, though. I was a naive teenager that thought music could save the world. I thought everyone was a music fan like me. No matter the artist or the personality, surely they'd have a good time like me, right? Right? But while we laughed, the comment stung, because I knew he was right. His poor experience is probably deeply rooted in my subconscious. Gosh, as I think about it more, that might be the direct attribution to why I go to most concerts alone. Fear of ruining someone's night. But in this scenario, I couldn't blame Matt. We were 16 years old, and I was dragging him to a concert of an artist more than 30 years removed from his prime. This one was on me. But as good friends tend to do, Matt wanted to rub it in a little bit deeper. He couldn't help himself. And if the tables had been turned, I would have done the same. What if I was destined to be a music critic or an artist, and you completely derided my destiny? You literally ruined my life, Lance. Okay, now I'm with his wife. You're being dramatic, Matt. That didn't change the truth, though. I ruined live music for Matt. What else had I done? I was a monster. Welcome concert goers, music fanatics, and rainy day women. 
My name is Lance Ingram, and in the Season 3 premiere episode of Yesterday's Concert, our jam journal takes us to April 26, 2006. Grab your earplugs as we go to the Mississippi Coliseum in Jackson, Mississippi, for Bob Dylan. Matt and I sat at the dinner table in my parents' home. The smells of melty cheese and crispy pepperoni filled the kitchen. Our teenage metabolism ravaged the contents of the pizza box that lay between us. We ate in silence, not allowing conversation to deter the shoveling of grease into our mouths. Then Matt finally broke the hush. Your parents' home is so quiet. It had never occurred to me, but he was right. There wasn't a peep. Both my mom and dad were home and in other parts of the house. Yet it felt like we were the only two home. There was no music, no white noise, or even ambiance. Recognizing the sound of silence is a creepy revelation. For growing up like this, I guess it never occurred to me. This was just normal. Matt paused to take in the silence. This is weird. My parents always had the TV go in or something. I don't think I've ever been somewhere so quiet before. He shoved a slice of pizza in his mouth. It was the first time I was conscious of how loud he was chewing. Or was it regular chewing and I could just hear everything now? Mid-bite, mouth still full of food, I saw his face illuminate as if he solved the world's greatest mystery. Maybe that's why you like music so much. You're so accustomed to the silence that you rebel by seeking out noise. Now that's ridiculous. I love music because it's art, and I'm a connoisseur of the finer things in life. My mind has an appreciation for the beauty and grandeur of life's highest art form, I put my pizza down as the weight of the word sank me like a Titanic. Matt was smarter than me, though. That's not even humility, a simple fact. He was in advanced classes like AP Calculus, and I struggled to complete simple algebra. Matt's small comment left me performing an internal psych analysis. I stared out the window, adding to the silence and contemplated the very depths of my existence. Had he figured me out? Even to this day, I still wonder. Was Matt correct? Is my entire persona as a music fan based around some teenage rebellion? Huh. I never really considered that. The response was all I could muster. As his epiphany sank deeper within, we were out the door and on our way to the concert. The polar opposite of my home. The show tonight was Bob Dylan. Yes, the epitome of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. During my early teenage years, this was my guy. He spoke to me. This was a time when I still found deep meaning in lyrics. I didn't care that his voice was nasally and his songs were wordy. Childhood naivety had been stripped from me and the troubles of the world were ever present. The veil had been ripped away as I saw headlines of war and terror. My classic rock-fueled brain was saying, Give Beast a chance! When the outside world was ravaged by greed and despair, I was frightened and clueless. When Dylan entered my life, it was the first time that I stepped away from the loud, crashing guitars of Ted Nugent, Leonard Skinner, and Boston. These weren't more songs about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Or at least, not in the traditional sense. This was singer-songwriter territory. Songs with larger meaning than you and me. My teenage brain feigned for intellectual and artistic depth. Decoding Dylan's lyrics was a feast. Songs like Masters of War and The Times They Are Changing were easy. I was all about Bob Dylan's 115th Dream and Gates of Eden. Why was the waitress wearing a cape? As a teenager, the first time you hear blowing in the wind, it kind of blows your mind. It became a mantra when I wanted to fake depth in conversation. 
The reality was, I didn't know what I was talking about. You know, it was applicable in 1962 and it's still relevant today. The answer's just blowing in the wind, man. I devoured Dylan. I started with his 1967 Greatest Hits album and worked my way backward. His first album, The Free Will and Bob Dylan, and The Times They Are a Changin'. The acoustic troubadour changed my entire perspective on what music could and should be. How could something so simple be so profound? It was no longer Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix, but Socrates incarnate. Suddenly the answers I was looking for in Stairway to Heaven and Purple Haze were found blowing in the wind, man. Many of my fellow music nerds mocked Dylan. His voice was an easy target. They ridiculed the absurdity of his lyrics and returned to their distortion pedals and riff overlords. But I was transfixed. This wasn't only music. It was poetry. It was art. I was driven by the pompousness of it all. I was an elite now. This was the deep stuff. Coming off the heels of my first concert almost an entire year earlier, I was searching for that next big high. Jackson, Mississippi wasn't exactly a target market for touring artists, but for some reason Bob Dylan was coming to town. My dad agreed for us to go and offered for me to bring a friend. I have no idea why I picked Matt instead of my girlfriend, who was actually a Bob Dylan fan. His response when I asked him about going should have been the first clue that I made the wrong choice. Hey, do you want to go see Bob Dylan with me? I don't know who that is, but yeah, okay, I'll go. Yeah, I'll take that shirt to medium, please. Okay, that'll be $25. Thank you. Enjoy the show. I held the lavender shirt against my body. I felt so cool. This wasn't one of the classic rock shirts you could buy at a big box store. This was a tour shirt. You had to go to the show to get this merch. This was a new respect level in rock and roll fandom. The Mississippi Column is a small arena in most respects. It's a large concrete room that looks like most high school gymnasiums. It's depressing and gray with hard plastic green chairs. The arena holds around 6,500 people and I have no memory of how many people filled out the room that night. Even in the early aughts and my limited concert experiences, I thought the place was a dump. Is this how far Dylan had fallen? Playing dumps? But the venue wasn't my first concern of the night. I went to the opener, Merle Haggard. I hated country music like despised the regnant pop that my peers heralded. But Merle was on another level. His old-school, oaky-from-the-skokie, fiddle-playing style was grinding nails on a chalkboard. It was worse than anything I'd heard on country radio. I hated all of it. The lyrics, the cowboy hats, and especially the crowd reaction. It was a redneck extravaganza. But I was also overcome with embarrassment. Who is this clown that was embarrassing me in front of my friend? This was not the show that I promised Matt. But when I thought I couldn't stand another moment, it was time for the main attraction. The house went dark. Here he comes. Here he comes. Hey, Bobby. Cameras flashed from around the audience. Amongst the cheers, a voice boomed from the house speakers. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the poet laureate of rock and roll. The voice of the promise of the 60s counterculture. The guy who forced folk into bed with rock. Who donned makeup in the 70s and disappeared into a haze of substance abuse who emerged to find Jesus 
who was written off as a has-been by the end of the 80s and who suddenly shifted gears, releasing some of the strongest music of his career beginning in the late 90s. Ladies and gentlemen, Columbia recording artist, Bob Dylan. The voice sounded like he could have repeated the intro while doing his taxes, cooking dinner, and juggling chainsaws. He was no hero's welcome, but the crowd was primed. The band came to life with a crash of the drums, a spotlight blast from the back of the room illuminating a man behind a keyboard. Slightly off-center stage, the man stood in a black suit jacket, white pants and matching boots. A white flat-brimmed hat shadowed his face as he jammed with the band on his keyboard. That was him. That was the legend. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't make out any discernible features from our seats, but I knew it was him. I was witnessing Bob Dylan in real life. It wasn't even the awe of seeing Bob Dylan the artist, but Bob Dylan the icon. Don't want to work on Maggie's farm no more. Ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. The crowd cheered and shot out of their chairs. This was much livelier and louder than I expected. Those that could stand were up and dancing. The lyrics were unintelligible. His already nasally voice was compounded by age and a lifetime of smoking. His band was tight, precise. The song's fresh arrangement left me dumbfounded about what he was actually playing. It wasn't the boring adult contemporary revamped version that squanders so many of his contemporaries. It was a mix of early 60s rock and roll, Americana, and surf rock. It sounded nothing like the folk singer-songwriter that I was expecting. And what was he doing behind a keyboard? This was Bob Dylan. He was the guy with the guitar that killed fascist. Bob never budged though. He stood behind his keyboard, rarely a sway. He was committed to the machine that rang like a church organ. It sat at the front of the mix, loud and proud. Dylan stared at the back of the room, or at his bandmates, but his gaze never wandered into the crowd. After Maggie's Farm, he ran through She Belongs to Me and Tweedledee and Tweedledum. It wasn't until the fourth song, unironically, or perhaps who knows with Dylan, positively Fourth Street, that I recognized a tune, although the new arrangement sounded nothing like the original. Bob's voice scratched and grated. It was raspy, gravelly, and coarse. It overshadowed the lyrics in the mix. When I could faintly follow what he said, I hung on every word. This was the master poet. The one who had spoken so much into my understanding of the world. So you say you lost your faith, but that's not where it's at. You have no faith to lose, and you know. It was like Bob Dylan speaking right to you. His lyrics pierced every bit of armor you had put up. I nodded my head in agreement. He was speaking to me and I was accepting his words like a dear friend. The music dampened to a quiet whisper behind his voice. His pauses between stanzas seemed to take an extra beat. It was unclear if he'd forgotten the words or was letting them resonate. Either would have accentuated the moment. Then again, how was 64-year-old Bob Dylan remembering all these words? These weren't exactly sing-alongs. Bob leaned back from the microphone and glanced at his guitarist. Stu Kimball and Danny Freeman traded guitar solos before delightfully harmonizing. It was transcendent, and almost without notice, Dylan barked back into the song. I wish that for just one time, you could stand inside my shoes, and just for that one moment, I could be you. The band members exchanged smiles. They locked into Bob's frequency and emanated respect. Their affection for him not as a legend, a poet, or a star, but as the band leader and ringmaster of their circus. Bob's reputation to change arrangements, keys, and songs without notice is well documented, but this band was sharp. 
It had been five years since Dylan's last studio album was released. We were months away from his next album, Modern Times. But like all legacy artists, the new stuff wasn't what the crowd showed up for. Despite his most recent string of albums receiving critical favor, the new songs received a lukewarm response. They're no blonde on blonde or blood on the tracks. But the odd thing is, or maybe not with Dylan, that somehow tracks. As a naive Dylan fan, my preferences and understanding of the artist were limited to the early 60s folk singer, the acoustic troubadour, the image of a man dwarfed by his guitar and face hidden behind a harmonica, the protest singer who denied ever singing a protest ballad. Yet he hid behind a keyboard the entire evening, and his arrangement sounded nothing like what I'd heard. Even when he played classic tracks that I wanted, I didn't recognize them. A sinking disappointment grew with every song. I pretended it was great. It was Dylan, so that should count extra, right? But this wasn't what I wanted. It was a bait-and-switch performance. When I started to give up hope on recognizing a single song, he started just like a woman, albeit with a slide guitar and country feel. It sounded so close to the original. But the slide was gorgeous, and it sang the chorus with the beauty that Dylan's voice could never achieve. Nobody feels any pain. Upon hearing Dylan's words, the crowd came alive. Yeah, Bobby. They attempted to sing along with the chorus, but Dylan was on his own time. The melody was its own, a recollection of the original, as well as an entirely new arrangement. Bob's keys danced between the guitar lines. Through an instrumental break, he pressed into his harmonica. The notes were quiet and his band dropped to give him some room. His harmonica echoed the slide guitar from earlier. It was elegant and sweet. It had kindness and soul. Bob threw me another bone with Highway 61 Revisited next, another song that sounded much like the original. His band turned up for this one. The sound bounced off the walls of the concrete corridor. His raspy wails slipped into the music without notice. It might have been Bob's strongest vocal performance of the night. The song's rock and roll loudness perfectly complemented his aged voice. Before the show, in a moment of excitement, I cheated on this concert. No, I didn't see a Bob Dylan cover band but I did peep at his most recent set list. I couldn't wait to see what protest anthems we were due. While his main set varied night in and night out, his encore was always the same. It was top tier song choices too. The exact sort of material you want in those slots. I could tell Matt was unimpressed thus far, so during the encore break, I offered some encouragement. He's about to do the real good stuff, man. Just wait. If it's the two songs I think it is, or you're about to be floored. It was all projection. I struggled with the confidence to believe the words I was saying. Even if he did play what I expected, would I recognize it? I barely had recognized anything else to this point. How much of a poser would I look like if he started the songs and I was left shrugging my shoulders? Bob returned from the encore break and when the music blasted it sounded exactly like what I wanted to hear. It was a moment of reprieve to actually recognize the song. How does it feel? Bob yelled. One thing unique about legacy artists, some of them spend too much of the show telling you the history. There are frequent breaks to take a trip down Nostalgia Lane, then there's Doobie Brothers 101. We don't need the whole history, guys. Just play the songs. But Bob sidetracked all of that. It wasn't until the very last song that he spoke a word to the audience. It left him shrouded in mystery. He never showed his hand. Was he enjoying himself, or was he disappointed in us? But even when he spoke... It was simple. Well, thank you, friends. 
This is my band right here. I'd like to introduce them. While many of the songs that night had been special in retrospect, it was the finale that brought the thunder. Bypassing his own version, Bob's band launched into the Hendrix version of All Along the Watchtower. Albeit a little toned down, it was just as powerful in lyric and song. To think of all the excellent versions Bob had to choose from, Hendrix, the Dave Matthews Band, the Grateful Dead, Pearl Jam, Neil Young, U2, and so many more. This was the best arrangement. It's difficult to find a better version of this song. The band slammed the finale. Bob tipped his hat and was off the stage before the house lights had a chance to come up. Just like that, the legend was no longer in my sights, but I had seen Bob Dylan for the first time. A true icon. The experience was mine. I looked to Matt, excited and radiating from the performance. How great was that? I asked him. Matt replied flatly, pretty good. After the show, Matt was polite about the performance. He said he enjoyed it. He didn't go much further than that, though. Now, more than a decade later, as we sat around a dinner table, the truth was free. I had ruined live music for Matt. After high school, I stopped listening to Bob Dylan. The songs lost their meaning to me. My taste evolved and I found other artists that spoke to me. And the more time grew between the show and me, the more I started to acknowledge that the concert wasn't great. However, the reason was never the actual performance. It was always a failure of my expectations. He didn't play the songs I wanted to hear. He wasn't the protest folk legend I envisioned. His new arrangements were weird. In the decade plus that I spent away from Bob Dylan's music, I skipped multiple opportunities to give him another chance. And on more than one occasion, I found myself playing gatekeeper when someone told me they saw a good Bob Dylan show. There was no such thing as far as I was concerned. It's not uncommon knowledge that Bob shows can be hit or miss. It depends on his mood and what songs he feels like playing. But even stepping away from the concert in 2006, it's wild to think about all the songs he left on the table. I'm sure when you have a career that's 60 years long, you get sick of the hits. In 2020, the week of the national shutdowns, Bob Dylan announced a new leg to his never-ending tour. It was a string of four shows all within close approximation to me, and I was going to hit all of them. Of course, these shows never happened. Dylan released a new album and a new tour route. Why the change of art? I started spending time with his music again. I ventured beyond the early 60s and into his entire discography. I listened to Oh Mercy for the first time. I deep-dived into his bootleg series. I even found an audience tape of the 2006 Jackson show. The thing that I misunderstood about Dylan in 2006 was that Bob is a chameleon. It's almost as soon as he starts being recognized for something, he shifts his style again. Whether he has a restless heart or an artistic mind, or maybe both, I don't know. But ultimately, Bob Dylan does what Bob Dylan wants to do. He's the greatest con man in modern music, and I say that in the most loving way possible. In retrospect, I hate that I failed to understand the Jackson show. The experience was wasted on the youth, but it took almost two decades of listening to his music before I started to comprehend the magic of Bob Dylan. When I listen to Desolation Row from the Jackson show now, I'm amazed at everything about the song. The lyrics, the arrangement, the outrageous 12-minute length. I hate that it took me so long to get here. I don't live with much regret, but missing all those Bob Dylan shows is up there for me. 
I think about that lavender Dylan shirt I bought in 2006. I wore that thing for a decade before I was forced to retire it. Even if I didn't love the show, the cred that shirt gave me was huge. Dylan was still a legend, and I had seen him in concert. So Matt, I'm sorry I ruined your first concert. I'm sorry that I didn't understand Dylan's music better. I did that night wrong. And the next time Bobby's in town, I'll make sure I don't invite you. I'm Lance Ingram, and this is Yesterday's Concert. Thanks for tuning in to another show. Sources and more information on today's show are available on our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. While you're there, check out some old episodes, or connect with us on Twitter, at ConcertPod, or on Instagram, at Yesterday's Concert. And until next time, take care of your shoes.